It doesn't stand still, but the government's level of service always seems to lag that of the private sector. My next guests say improving customer experience is essential to improving trust in government itself. And therefore, the Biden administration's latest executive order on customer experience is helpful. Here with more from Brookings, fellow Annalise Goger. Ms. Goger, good to have you on. Great to be here. And from the public agency contractor Nava, co-founder Sha Huang. Mr. Huang, good to have you on. Wonderful to be here. All right. So let's begin with this thesis, the idea that trust is, I guess we knew this intuitively, but a time when programs are getting bigger and more complicated and some of the reports about pandemic spending are not all that favorable in terms of efficiency. There's a need to at least restore some of that trust in government. And you feel that customer experience is foundational to that. Tell us more. Annalise? Sure. And I think most people can relate to this in some way, whether it's by going to the DMV or filing their taxes. But I think when the pandemic hit, a huge amount of Americans that never before had interacted with safety net programs like unemployment insurance or eviction assistance were accessing those for the first time. So they were pretty shocked to see what it was like and how much some of our systems have degraded with long-term disinvestment. And I'm not just talking about technology, but also just processes that haven't really been revisited for 20, 30, 40 years. And so, you know, I could give one example of a restaurant worker that I interviewed and she had lost her job with the lockdowns and she didn't have a computer because she had cut off her internet to save money. So she tried calling the unemployment office here in DC and she had to wait, you know, eight or nine hours for them to pick up the phone. She tried multiple times over the course of a week. She finally got through. And what happened was the person who took her name spelled her name wrong. Oh boy. And because of that, it put her in the queue for fraud detection which took 12 weeks to get through. So she didn't get her benefits for 12 weeks. You know, she's worried about paying her rent, whether she has to move back to her parents. And she's been working for years trying to get through college. And, you know, it was just mortifying, you know, really horrible for her to go through this experience. And it really undermines your trust that the government will be there when you are in a crisis. And that story underscores lots of technical issues that lead up to such a situation that are underneath the surface there. And Shaw, your company has done a lot of work with agencies on this. Maybe just take a quick minute to describe the company, a public benefit corporation, and a couple of the projects you've done that relate to this type of encounter that we don't want people to have. Thank you, Tom. So Nava is a public benefit corporation. So we work as a contractor to federal and state agencies. We got our start during the healthcare.gov rescue effort in 2013, during that first open enrollment, where we saw a lot of the same issues that, frankly, we still see today that other agencies and other programs still struggle with the delivery of critical public services under overwhelming demand, the challenge of integrating across multiple different legacy systems and things like that. So we partner with state and federal government agencies focused mainly on safety net programs to do so. So with respect to building a public-facing application or adapting one, say in the case of the delivery of test kits by the post office, they simply adapted an application that existed. The application worked great. We don't know how well the post office is going to work yet, but we know the application worked. And so what elements does an agency need to consider in architecting a public-facing application there such that problems of spelling or name or identity and all of this can be avoided to the most extent possible? Shaw? 
I think Annalise and I touch on this a bit in our piece on the Brookings blog responding to the Biden's executive order is you can cut through so much of the noise and set things up for success if you just do the simple thing of talking to the people who will be impacted by the services you're designing and building. That just radically reduces the kind of level of complexity that may be imagined when you're kind of designing against requirements or designing against things without testing them in the field. So I think some of the successes of COVIDtest.gov build on some of the practices that USDS, who is involved in this effort, has kind of been advocating for a while around kind of starting with users and starting where people are. Some of the other things I think Annalise and I argue are considering steps holistically. I think this also helps set up new efforts like covidtest.gov for success. Being able to consider the technology within the context of the broader kind of customer experience and thinking holistically, understanding that in this case, there didn't need to be an identity management step. You didn't need to create an account to request these tests. And so then immediately you remove both a user experience bottleneck where people might fall out of the flow And you also reduce a lot of load. You reduce the technical need to be able to support all of these workflows or account management problems or things like that that oftentimes come up. You can design something more like a grocery store experience than passing through security to board a flight type of experience. And I think that sensitivity is a customer experience perspective that has many kind of tech and architectural implications as well. Sure, you can't even buy razor blades nowadays without having an account somewhere, and sometimes you just don't want an account. You just want the razor blades. We're speaking with Sha Huang. He's co-founder of public services contractor Nava, and with Annalise Goger. She's a fellow at Brookings. And Annalise, why do you think the government is always a step behind on these things? I mean, customer experience and using the human-centered design approach that Shaw just described is almost intuitive, or it should be. So what takes them so long to get there? Well, one of the issues is that government has a lot of different priorities to balance when they're working with programs or service delivery. And so obviously one of them is things like fraud or maybe at a lesser scale of severity, somebody getting access to a program that really it wasn't designed for. So a lot of our programs since the 80s have really been framed around eligibility processes that are sort of measured and rewarded for letting the right people in and not letting the wrong people in. Because if you're the public servant and your program goes to the wrong person, your whole career could be in jeopardy. It could be a public scandal. And so I think there's a culture of fear as a result of this and a culture of compliance-oriented thinking. And that undermines the idea of innovative thinking, taking risks, trying new things. That's one thing. And then I think a second factor that's really important is the structure of how budgets are set up, how procurement happens. It's often kind of built for a previous era when you did waterfall, big long-term projects and not little bit by little bit by little bit, which is how the private sector generally develops tech right now. And so there's this idea that technology is an afterthought that supports the program instead of you're integrating the technology, the process, and the user input all the way along the way. And then the third factor is really just about a massive disinvestment over 30, you know, similar to our physical infrastructure, our our digital infrastructure, our programs have been not invested in and not maintained. So in, in many states, the underlying data systems are 30, 40 years old, they're not designed for the internet, let alone for apps. (laughs) And so it's a question of staff capacity. You know, are there pay scales where you can recruit the right people 
It's also a question of things like rules from the Office of Management and Budget. For example, they have a law under the Paperwork Reduction Act that says you can't interview more than nine people in a federally funded project, which is totally counter to the idea of getting user input, right? You really want to be able to interview more than nine people for one particular service. So it's built for a different era. And and I think part of the problem, and I'm glad one of the reasons I'm glad about this executive order is that maybe we can start to revisit some of those rules and think about them with the priority of the end user and reducing the burden on them instead of like just thinking about compliance. And Shaw, where you have encountered some of these monolithic systems, the VA operates a lot of them, HHS has them, the IRS. We all know about that one. They've been trying to modernize that one for 30 years with assembly code actually running for their essential systems. Is there a way from your experience that those systems can be incrementally over time adopted to the new ways that are needed such that you don't have this sudden waterfall lift and shift that we just, I don't know how many times they try it, it never works. Yeah, I think about it, uh, you know, oftentimes we talk at Nava, uh, we, we jokingly like to call a bit of our practice software archaeology, like there's a bit of that spelunking that needs to happen to be able to understand, not just the technical history or the technical kind of substrate, but also the organizational history. What were the decisions that led to systems being built in this way? What are the processes behind it? How much of these are regulatory or, or like hard requirements and how much of these were to Annalise's earlier point, you know, workarounds for an era that we don't exist in anymore that we can kind of revisit a good example. Maybe is uh, we did some work with the VA department of veterans affairs on the veterans appeals process. And part of that work was about digitizing a form that VA caseworkers and attorneys were using and filling out manually but when we did that user research and started interviewing stakeholders, we started to understand that one, all the VA caseworkers and stakeholders we were interviewing could find that data elsewhere. So the form, and we traced that form all the way back to regulations introduced in 1933, and we found that the form did not need to exist anymore. Um, so that I think was a perspective where if we had purely taken a technology as the only solution lens or using tech as a hammer or app development as a hammer, we could have created a digital process for a workflow that didn't need to exist anymore. And instead, it became working with the stakeholders at the VA and figuring out uh, what were the kind of business process changes to simplify the experience and not have to actually build this in code. Um, So I think that's been a useful example of, I think, the value or the investment of research and investigation and this kind of archaeology that allows us to not just allow projects to get bigger and bigger so they become too hard to handle or too hard to comprehend, and then they kind of are set up for failure, um, but kind of starting small and, and kind of pursuing a line of inquiry that allows us to design much more specific interventions that leave the agency in a better and more sustainable place long term. All right. So as we close, are there any examples you can point to where, hey, they did this really well in the federal government? Annalise? Well, I wouldn't say it's federal government, but it's local implementation of federal funding, which is the SNAP program. And so Code for America developed an app called Get CalFresh, which I think is a really good example of making a program application process easier over time. And so this is an app where you can apply for food assistance. And what they did were things like, you know, let's take the question of what's your income, right? That's actually really tricky to ask in a way that 
people with different types of income can understand and answer in a accurate and consistent way. And so they did a lot of testing on if I ask it this way, if I ask it this way. And so eventually they get it at a way of asking the question that gets better data from it that's more consistent. And then they can give the person a more accurate sense of whether their application is likely to be eligible or not for SNAP. And that kind of takes away some of the mystery and stress of trying to apply and figuring out like, how do I respond to this question that seems like Greek to me, which I think is unfortunately the way a lot of our forms and applications are. And so this idea of having something you can do on a phone, you don't need necessarily an internet. And over time, all the questions are getting better and better at really gauging what is comprehensible to like different types of people. Yeah, that's a key point you bring out. I was going to say there is a large or a substantial portion of the population that does not have great internet access or may not be able to afford the best iMac or tablet there is. And also, there's a large percentage of the population that is unbanked. And somehow these applications, as you say, have to be able to take those people into account who might be the most vulnerable of all and need these benefits more than anyone so that it can be done by telephone and postal service. Mm Mm-hmm. Or just making a phone call and not having to wait nine hours to talk to somebody, yeah. So that ties in the call center and the rules engine as well as the application, Shaw. Yeah, I agree. I I think that's an excellent example. And I think also some of the consolidation around the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has been upgrading and modernizing Medicare.gov. And we're actually called out in Biden's executive order as well to just continue the work that they've been doing Uh, kind of personalizing the experience where I think before, if you were on Medicare, you were managing up to, I think, 11 different accounts on different Medicare.gov type properties, Uh, but now consolidating that so that if you are on Medicare, you have one account and one experience, and that's a place where you can actually see more personalized information about plans or prescription information that changes. I think that's been pretty successful because they've thought about it from not the organization structure or the various kind of departments and offices within uh, Medicare, uh, but from the Medicare beneficiary's perspective about what are their needs and what are they trying to solve. Shaw Huang is co-founder of public services contractor NAVA. Annalise Goger is a fellow at Brookings. Thank you both for being with me. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. We'll post this interview along with a link to their blog at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. 
Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash bestmusic to get Live One Plus now. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 